From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. For today's podcast, I have to be honest, it's not something I know a lot about, but it's something that really intrigues me. It's the concept of signaling. So, to begin, let's imagine we're in a jungle. One male gorilla threatens another male gorilla. There's no mistaking those signals. Each animal understands what the other is saying. But when it comes to nations, it's a bit more complicated. During the Cold War, thanks to arms control and other negotiations, Russia and the United States worked out certain rules of the game. But those rules are disappearing, and new technologies like robotics and artificial intelligence create threats we never imagined. Some of it is going on above the surface, but like an iceberg, a lot of it is unseen. That's George Beebe, vice president of the Center for the National Interest and former director of Russia analysis at the CIA. It's below the waterline. The most significant parts of it are unseen. And they're going on in the shadows. It's in many respects an intelligence war, a war between people who are operating in the shadows. And a lot of this is taking place in the cyber realm. And some of it's taking place in what you might call the information sphere. And because we're not familiar with how this is being played out, most people in the public don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. George Beebe has a new book about this. It's called The Russia Trap, how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into catastrophe. The problem that we have today is we're dealing in this shadow war in a realm that we're all unfamiliar with. And how you send signals in that domain and how you interpret signals that the other side is sending is very much unclear. And part of the reason for this is in the cyber world, things that are clearly delineated in the bricks and mortar world are all blurred together. And I'll give you an example, intelligence gathering. Intelligence gathering in the bricks and mortar world is fairly discreetly defined. When I gather information about what the other side is doing, I can't turn around and use that information gathering function as a weapon that can actually damage that other side. There's a distinction between intelligence gathering and warfare that's fairly clear. When it comes to cyber espionage, gathering information through digital means, the intentions behind that information gathering can be very ambiguous to the person that's on the receiving end of that espionage. Because if I intrude into another country's computer system, for example, I can go into that system solely for the purpose of gathering data. I can download data from that system for purely information gathering purposes. But for the person that observes this intrusion on the other end, I don't know why this intruder is in my system. Maybe it's just to gather data, but maybe it's to disrupt that data, to destroy it, to also 
insert into the database false information that renders the entire database useless or damaged in some way. So what this means is I could be signaling in a crisis situation by intruding into someone else's cyber system and posing a threat to them saying, hey, we're doing this, we think, to send you a message that you've crossed a red line on our side, but it's not clear to the person on the receiving end what that intention is about. What is the signal that's being sent? Is it a signal saying, hey, back off, you've gone too far in our own system? Or is this more fundamentally aggression, something that represents an intention on the part of this intruder to inflict unacceptable damage on my system? So this is an area that we have to think more deeply about. It's inherently ambiguous, and it's one that we haven't really discussed or explored in our bilateral discussions with the Russians. Do Russia and the United States then talk about this? Can you even objectively talk about it if it's primarily dealing with the cyber realm, which is intentionally vague? Well, I think it's something that we have to talk about, because if we assume that we will naturally understand what each side's red lines are in the course of this shadow war, in the course of this cyber competition, the danger that we run is that we'll discover where those red lines are drawn only after we've crossed the red line. And to harken back to that Cold War historical analogy, we did that sort of thing with the Soviet Union. And there was no ambiguity about the relationship between the United States and Soviet Union at the time. We were clearly competitors. The Russians, the Soviets regarded us as enemies. We did the same toward them. And yet we did engage in these kinds of discussions. We did engage in arms control negotiations. We did establish rules of the game to manage this competition. Why we did that was because we recognized we had to. There was no alternative to doing that, even though we were deadly enemies. We've seen a lot more malicious activity, especially over the last few years. Chris Painter worries about signaling, too. He's one of the world's top experts in cybersecurity and cyber policy. He was a senior official at the Justice Department, the FBI, the National Security Council, and the State Department. I mean, obviously, the election interference was at the top of the heap. That's something we didn't see coming, frankly, and really went to the heart of our democracy. But also, we've seen attacks on infrastructure in the Ukraine, on their power grid. We've seen some what they call big computer worms, which had massive damage. One was called the Notpetya worm mm -hmm. that took down the shipping ability of Maersk and really had a worldwide effect. Another was called WannaCry, which had an effect on the national health system in the UK. So we've seen these very damaging attacks and these capabilities of cyber tools or cyber weapons. In the physical world, we kind of know what the rules of the road are, right? We know that if you invade someone's territory, that's a problem. We sort of know what the lines are. In the cyber world, we're still figuring it out. So just a few years ago, we reached a consensus with countries, including China and Russia, that international law applies to cyberspace. Now, that may seem like a given, 
But it wasn't really clear. Some people said that maybe cyberspace should have whole new rules, which would have itself been somewhat disruptive and destabilizing. Then there was an understanding that some of those rules, rules of like armed conflict, et cetera, are very high. Despite a lot of things you read in the paper, we don't have cyber wars yet. We don't have those major, major attacks that kill people or cause that kind of damage. But we're worried about them. So what do you do about the things we see every day? And so there's been a lot of work at saying, what are the norms? What are the rules of the road, the voluntary rules of the road in cyberspace? Don't attack the critical infrastructure of another country when it's not wartime. In wartime, there are certain rules for that. Don't go after what they call the computer emergency response teams. These are like the national response units. They're like the ambulances, the hospitals. So what things are off limits? And then how do you enforce those? Signaling is still not very clear, and escalation is far from clear. If we have something that attacks us, let's say we found malicious computer code on our nuclear power grid. Well, that would cause a lot of concern, right? Mm -hmm. And we have seen malicious code on our energy grid, and that's caused us a lot of concern. doesn't necessarily mean it was going to be used, but it's a concern. Our military has said we're going to do things to go after the adversary wherever they are in the world. That sounds really good, but that aggressiveness could also provoke a response that we really don't know what that response will be. And then complicating all of this is that we the U.S., are far more dependent on these technologies than almost anyone else. So mm -hmm. we're kind of in a glass house. <laughs> so that leads to this difficulty that even when we want to respond to this bad activity, we're worried about what the response from the other side will be. There's another part of it, too, I mean, from what I read and understand, which is you don't necessarily want the other guy to know what you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. So can you walk me through that? Well, that's been a tension that's been going on for as long as I've been involved in this. And I've been involved for over 20 years in different capacities in this. And it comes down to this issue of, do you sit and watch? Do you see what they're doing? Do you try to get an idea of what their tactics and procedures are? Do you try to get an idea of who's doing what and how they're setting up their networks? Or do you take action to prevent damage to your companies, to your businesses, to your own infrastructure, to your own government entities. So when we talk about cyber, there are nation states. Yeah. And then there is, <laughs> to quote President Trump, the 400-pound oh, guy. In his, his bedroom, exactly. But there are individuals yeah. who can do things that only nation states could do just very recently. I think it is an asymmetric threat in the sense that Unlike traditional warfare, traditional military, you don't need to have a huge budget to be a good actor in the space. However, I think nation states and really a handful of nation states are far more advanced in this than anyone else. The other actors are criminals, either lone gunmen, as I call them, criminals, or transnational organized criminal groups, and even terrorist groups who are using this more to communicate than to attack. But to do the kind of persistent really damaging activity, I think it still needs nation-state involvement. And the key nation-states on the adversarial side have been identified by the U.S. for years now, the same ones. Russia, China is the most capable. Iran and North Korea is moving up the chain fast. Mm -hmm. Is the administration doing enough? It's a tough issue. I think they have done some good work. They're focusing on this deterrence strategy. It's interesting if you look at the White House cyber strategy that came out now about a year and a half ago, it was very similar to the Obama strategy. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good, consistent thing. It even says we are better working together than we are alone, collectively, with other countries. That doesn't sound very America first-ish. That sounds like core diplomatic policy that is good for the U.S. and good for our allies. So in that sense, yes, I think they've been trying to do that. They've also been, I think, more aggressive in the sense of the Cyber Command, the part of the Department of Defense who does these issues, has focused on something called persistent engagement, that they're mm -hmm. going to go after the adversary's infrastructure no matter where they are in the world. And 
clearly we should be doing things like that. But if you're doing it unilaterally, it's kind of at odds with this idea of collective engagement too. So can you build those things together? Can you not be overly escalatory in what you're doing militarily? How do you marry these things together? And the jury's still out on that issue. Another person who's thinking a lot about signaling and the cyber world is J.D. Work. He's the Bren Chair for Cyber Conflict and Security at the Marine Corps University. He's been in this field of antagonistic action of potential combatants in the networked environment for two decades. Today, he says, great power competition is back. So it's not peace, but it's also not the kind of war we know how to recognize or think about the way we used to. The globally interconnected cyber domain collapses time and distance. It allows a variety of states to reach out and touch directly sources of U.S. and allied national power in take some of that power for themselves, degrade some of that power, either through economic espionage, through destructive or disruptive acts, and essentially to challenge the global international order to advance their own objectives in ways that they would prefer to see the world reshaped. Let's say that you have a cyber intrusion, and basically it's just kind of some countries snooping around in the system that controls our electrical grid. And we don't know what they're doing. I mean, are they just snooping around or do they want to shut it down? So how does the United States or any country, how do you react? How do you even understand what the other guy is trying to do? So this is one of the really unusual things of the new classes of instruments by which states are projecting power. So we've had a bit of this concern when we first entered the space for unmanned aerial vehicles. And a drone is both a sensor in some cases, but it is also frequently weaponized. And when the sensor is the shooter, it creates this degree of ambiguity about what the intention of the presence of that particular platform may be. When it comes to cyber, we have a similar ambiguity, but it's actually profound in that every piece of action that one might take within a network through initial access, through initial exploration and capabilities development can equally be turned with very little effort into an offensive action. And little effort, I don't want to downplay the technical complexity of some of these capabilities and the development cycles the adversary has put into these, but it's a matter of many cases of flipping a bit from turning something from reconnaissance or simple monitoring payload into a destructive action. There's much less time for warning, there's much less cycles for observation of adversary intention before that capability becomes a threat. Hmm. So that really creates a dilemma for the country that is being intruded upon, right? Because if you don't know what the other person is doing, how do you even tell them that they shouldn't be doing it? Very much. You have to look beyond the network at that point. You have to look beyond the technical artifacts of the malware, which describe the capability, the limitation of what the adversary can achieve on a given network. And look to the development programs, look to the doctrine, look to their strategic thinking. But then, of course, there's a moment in time where you simply have to say certain targets are not acceptable as a matter of international norms, as a matter of strategic stability, as a matter of the relations between peaceable states. So I'm presuming that the U.S. government is thinking about these things and has some type of a structure to think it out, kind of the way you did. 
Am I correct? So we have a series of competing visions, let us say, within the U.S. government. And again, I'll, for the disclaimer, all statements are my own. They do not represent the position of the U.S. government or any other agency within it. But when we're talking about these matters, we think across a few different lines. We can think about the manner in which we seek to reinforce those international norms. We can think about the manner in which we seek to reduce our vulnerability to the potential range and scope of adversary action and increase our resilience. Should an adversary take action, they will have less effect than they might desire out of that action. And then, of course, we can think about how we counter those actions, how we persistently move beyond our networks into the spaces where the adversary is operating and impose costs upon those adversaries so that they cannot freely access our infrastructure. They cannot freely conduct the types of destructive and disruptive actions that we consider beyond the pale. So that intellectual infrastructure is in place. Very much. It's still an ongoing set of debates. U.S. Cybercom articulated a vision of how that would work through this construct they're calling persistent engagement. The Department of Defense has broadly articulated some aspects of this through the broader concepts of defending forward and the relationships with our international partners. There's also an ongoing set of conversations between the executive and between the legislator of the Hill on the appropriate policy to pursue and the manner in which we fund our investments into this policy. Most recently, that played out through this entity known as the Cyberspace Solarum Commission, which was charged with evaluating comparative strategic approaches so that the different elements of the government could pursue a common approach and common vision. So, back to the jungle. If we want to warn off an opponent in the cyber realm, do we tell our enemies what we will do or can do to them? Every time we talk about a capability like that, we run into this difficult world of asymmetry. If we describe what can be done, an adversary may be able to, in the cyber domain, protect themselves against that in a different way. Simply knowing that a vulnerability may be exploited, simply knowing that a given concept of operation is possible, it allows the adversary to begin to prepare against those eventualities. So we're constantly in this tension between what can we demonstrate? How do we show what our posture looks like? And how do we protect those options for our decision makers in the future should we need them? Mm. It sounds dangerous. It's uncertain. Danger comes when that uncertainty translates into a misunderstanding or a variable perception on the different sides of the table that can lead to escalation or can lead to some unintended consequence. In the jungle, you beat your chest. In the cyber domain, it's never that simple. And for this podcast, our recording of the Russian National Anthem is from the Kremlin.ru website through Creative Commons. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. 
Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.